And for the rest of us, we are continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of John. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone would love to bring you a Bible. That's John chapter 6. We're going to be looking at the first half of John chapter 6. One of the songs that we sang earlier has at its sort of heart the theme that Jesus is king. Have you ever thought about what, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean that Jesus is king? Now, this season, it's voting season, or at least it was last week. And historically, candidates in America have used slogans, like political slogans, to sort of capture uh, in sort of bit form maybe some campaign promises or, or, or maybe just to capture some hope or what their presidency, let's say, would be all about. So, so for instance, in 1932, it was the Great Depression. Franklin Roosevelt tried to kind of instill hope in the country, and he used this slogan. Happy days are here again. Right? Sounds like a Hallmark card. It worked. Or, Or think about Dwight Eisenhower. Right before Facebook had likes, his caption was, I like Ike. That's good, huh? Catchy. Or my favorite, 1924, Calvin Coolidge wins a landslide victory because I think of his cool little uh, saying. His was, keep cool with Coolidge. It's <laughs> good. Right? So slogans like these, they sort of are an attempt to capture the imagination, to, to sort of foster hope and try to get in kind of bit, verbal form, even maybe some campaign promises. What we can expect from their leadership. But Jesus is king, and we believe that, we sang that, but what if Jesus had a, had a campaign marketing person at his disposal, what sort of slogan would Jesus have? What sort of campaign promises would he try to embed in a short, pithy statement? Well, our text today, and I'm going to read it in a second, has two stories. One, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. And another story, Jesus walks on water. So, so maybe his, his campaign slogan would be something like this. Free fish for everyone. I don't preach, right? I'll get some votes. Or what about this? Jesus, and you'll get this later. Jesus, better than a baker's dozen. There's a, there's a number play you'll see later. Or what about this? Vote for Jesus. Smooth sailing ahead. Well, in the middle of our text today, Jesus actually withdraws. And it's clear why he withdraws. He says that Jesus perceived in the heart of this crowd that it was around him that they wanted to make Jesus king by force. And you might wonder, like, Jesus is king. Why is that a bad problem? Why why, why it's a problem? I mean, Jesus is the king. They want to make him king? Why doesn't Jesus just let it happen? Well, the problem is that they wanted to make Jesus king the type of king that Jesus really wasn't. Free fish 
for everyone might garner some votes, but it's not the sort of king that Jesus is. So so today we're going to look at Jesus as the king. But he's not the sort of king that you might expect, which I tried to capture in the big idea, which is behind me, which is simply this. Jesus is the king, the long-awaited king, but not in the way you might expect. So turn with me to chapter 6, verse 1. We're going to look at the first 21 verses of John. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on a mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that those people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in this place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their full He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign they had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they went. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. We'll, we'll stop there. So just the setting, right? We, we, we have the setting in verse 1, the sort of setting of this part of the story. Jesus is in Galilee. He's been in Galilee for a while, doing ministry, healing people. And now he's at uh, sort of the border of Galilee. He's by the Sea of Galilee. Now this sea, it's, it's, it's not that big. It's, I looked it up. It's about the size of Lake Chelan. And so he's there. He's, he's there, and, and we learn in verse 2 as well, that, um, or verse 1, that it's also called the Sea of Tiberias. And so Herod renamed this sea after Caesar, uh, Caesar Tiberius. We also learn the setting, the time of year, it's Passover season. And so Jesus, he's teaching, he's healing, and there's this swell of people who begin to follow Jesus. Have you ever like been walking on the street and all of a sudden you just see a crowd just gathering and you just stop because you want to know what's going on? That's sort of what's going on with Jesus. 
There's just this swell of people wondering, what's Jesus going to do next? He keeps healing people. He keeps having these miraculous kind of signs. What, what, what's he going to do next? And so they begin to follow Jesus up to this high place, this mountain by the Sea of Galilee. And then after everyone sits down, verse 5, we've got a problem, a big problem. I wonder if some of you this morning have a similar problem. Hunger. And so Jesus asks Philip, where are we going to buy bread so these people can eat? Right? Jesus perceives that these people are hungry. He can hear their hunger pains. And so he turns to Philip and says, where are we going to go? Like, is, is Safeway open? Where, where can we buy some bread so that everyone can eat? I mean, it's a very practical question. We learned down in verse 10, if you look there, that there were about 5,000 people, not including children and women. So let's just say that there's eight, ten thousand 10,000 people. And so Jesus has this problem. It's, he's been teaching all morning. If you've ever been in like a lecture uh, and all of a sudden you've been sitting there for a long time and you begin to get hungrier and hungrier and you're supposed to be thinking about godly things and all you can think about is Applebee's? That's the problem here. And so Jesus turns to Philip and Philip's sort of the accountant type. He's the accountant disciple and so he turns to Philip and says, okay, where can we buy food? We're we're responsible for these people. They're in our care, so let's feed them. And we learn in verse 6 that Jesus asks this question because he's testing Philip. In other words, he knows the answer. He knows what Philip's going to do, but he wants to just unearth the terrain in Philip's heart. Philip's seen all these miracles. He's been walking with Jesus. He's one of Jesus' disciples, but he wants to see. Philip, what do you really believe about Jesus? What do you really believe I can do? What do you really believe I can accomplish? And so here is the perfect setting and context to test Philip to see what's in Philip's heart. Well, we, we learn verse 7, don't we? Philip responds, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So 200 denarii, that's eight months of a common laborer's wage. So just to put it into perspective, I did the math. It took me a half day to figure this out. But if you took in the state of Washington, taking minimum wage for eight months, that's $20,000 roughly. Okay? So basically, what Philip is saying, he does some mental math. He looks at everyone and goes, okay, uh, hmm, we're going to need about $20,000 in order to purchase enough bread to, to feed everyone. I mean, you think about it. Philip didn't really even answer Jesus' question. Jesus asks hey, where's the closest Chick-fil-A? And Philip answers, we don't have enough money. Jesus didn't ask a question about money. He just said, where can we buy bread? But Philip is a numbers guy. And if you're a number guy, I'm not saying that's bad. (laughs) I'm not one of them. But it doesn't have to be bad. But it could be bad if every problem... (laughs) The people who are laughing are the numbers people, I think. Or the spouses. Right? It it could be bad if you think you can solve every problem with a calculator. And that's Philip. He he can't get over the problem. 
the mathematical problem. He, he, seems, he, he sees every problem as a problem to be solved with some simple math. And he just couldn't get over the mental calculation that he had provided. There's no possibility that all these people could be fed. There's just not enough resources. And I think he's not alone. I mean, we, we, we do this all the time. I remember, uh, this was years ago, but my wife and I joined the Navigators. It's a, it's a campus ministry, and we were set to go do campus ministry at Oregon State University. And I remember we, 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 we had to go to Oregon State, or we had to go to Colorado Springs before we went to Oregon State. We had to go to Colorado Springs for orientation. And so there's roughly 100 other men and women who are all going to be campus ministers at all these different uh, college campuses. And the first night, you know, everyone's sharing stories about how God called them to do this ministry. God called them. It's going to be this amazing thing. They're going to go to campus, win people for Christ. It's going to be great. And then the next day, we all got in a room, and this man came in and said, okay, now we're going to talk about how you're going to get to campus. You got to start making phone calls to people. You need to each raise about $100,000. So get on the phone, start calling people, and raise that money. And I remember seeing a girl at my table just start crying. Now, I remember that girl last night was all excited. God had called her, but then she started doing the math and saying, 100,000 people or $100,000 calling, you know, hundreds of people? I don't think so. Yesterday, she was confident. Now, in, in light of seeing this sort of sticker price, you begin to think, I don't know. I mean, yes, theologically speaking, God is quite wealthy. He could do it, but then you begin to think, yeah, but God, will you do it? Well, Philip's not alone, is he? Philip is sort of the, the accountant, but now we have Andrew. Oh, I think he's like an economics guy. He, he's an economic professor. Similar, yet a little bit different. So look, look there at verse 8. Andrew, who's Peter's uh, brother, he speaks up and says, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now, if, Peter, or if Andrew just shut his mouth right now, we'd go, great. Okay? Men, maybe we can take a lesson from this. But he just keeps talking. Because instantly we could go, oh, maybe he's got a plan. Maybe he, he, he believes that Jesus could do something with these five loaves and two fish. But he just keeps speaking and says, but basically, but what good are they? Right? But, but what are they for so many? I mean, five fish, two loaves to feed 5,000 mouths. What, what good are those? So Philip as the accountant, now we have Andrew as the economics professor. And he's looking at the market economy, isn't he? There's just not enough resources. I mean, you could take a scalpel and divide some bread and fish, but divide it up into 5,000 bits? Nope, can't do that. If you read the other accounts um, in the Gospels, you realize that then after this, after... Um, uh, Andrew and Philip speak. The other disciples kind of convene to try to solve this problem, and they're no help as well. They're like, there's, there's, there's no hope. There's no possible way in which we can feed all of these people. They all come to the same conclusion. And, and if we were there with the disciples, hanging out as disciples, we would probably be doing the same thing. There's just no possibility that we could feed 
all of these people. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough resources. It's impossible. And really, when you think about it, their problem, their basic problem, it wasn't that they were considering their scarcity. I mean, they they had scarce resources. But their problem wasn't their scarcity. Actually, their problem was they didn't realize their prosperity. They had one factor that they hadn't considered. All they could see was what they didn't have. They didn't realize what they did have. One factor was sitting there all along, Jesus. And it's sort of ironic because what did Jesus do earlier in chapter 2 of John? Jesus was at a wedding. And what happened at the wedding? Scarcity. And what did Jesus took? He took something they, they did have, water, and he turned it into something what they didn't have, wine. And they were there, and they saw it. They saw this miracle. But now, they're like, no, Jesus can't take what we, the little that we do have and multiply it into what we don't have. You see, their problem wasn't their scarcity. Their problem was they didn't realize how truly rich they were because they had Jesus with them. Well, at this point, Jesus steps in, doesn't he? He makes everyone sit down. Verse 11, he takes the, what they did have. He takes the loaves and the fish, and he gives thanks. And then he just begins to distribute them. And like in the Exodus, like bread coming from heaven, it just multiplies over and over and over again. This is like one of those buffet lunches that you go to, right? Like they just keep giving out the bread and fish, but this is like not a snack. This is like an unlimited buffet. They keep eating and eating and eating. And then finally Jesus says, all right, just pick up the scraps, whatever's left. And there's 12 baskets full. I mean, there is an abundance of food. Everyone eats. Everyone is full. Everyone is satisfied. And Jesus does this with just five loaves and two fish. I mean, this is an amazing miracle. And I think it's an amazing miracle because it works counterintuitively. I think we, sort of by way of application, we, we think that Jesus usually works in light of our gifts. That, that Jesus usually works in light of our strengths. We even take personality tests and we do all these sorts of things to figure out what are our strengths because God really wants to use our strengths. So we're like, we're really good at business. So God, use, use my use my, my business savvy for your glory. Or, or I'm, I'm, I'm really good with my hands. Or I, I'm really smart, so God, use my strengths. Use my hands. I've got a lot of resources. I just got an inheritance. Use my inheritance. And I'm not saying that's not a good prayer. I'm just saying that's not what we see going on here, do we? It's not like the disciples come and say, look at my strengths, look at all this resource, look at all we've got. Now just, Jesus, why don't you use the, 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 the amazing gifts that we have and expand it No, they bring Jesus pretty much nothing. And Jesus takes nothing and makes something. Jesus takes their scarcity. Jesus takes their weakness. Jesus takes the little that they do have. And he says, just put it in my hands and I'm going to use it. So often we think our strength plus God equals some amazing things, which very often is true. But often, often, the only thing we can take to Jesus, the only thing we have, maybe is our debt. 
Maybe the only thing you have to take to Jesus as an offering is your broken heart, your guilt, your suffering, your broken marriage. And Jesus here is just reminding us that you don't have to bring your life fully together or all of your strengths, that often Jesus wants to just take your nothing, your little, your, your little something, your little brokenness, your weaknesses, and use all of our weaknesses in order to accomplish something amazing. Because that's the math equation here. It's a little something plus Jesus equals everything. That's the mathematical equation that the accountant Philip didn't understand. That the little that he did have in the hands of Jesus could be multiplied into an extraordinary yield. And so that's what we see here. We, we see Jesus as this amazing king, but he's, he's not the sort of king that says, oh, no, just, just bring, come to me when your life is perfectly together or when you have everything worked out. He says, no, just come to, come to me. Come to me in your weaknesses. Come to me and I will use you. He always does. See, Jesus doesn't promise that he's going to feed the 5,000 when they give him the bread and the fish. And in many ways, when we offer Jesus the little that we do have, whatever that is for you, it's over our pay grade to say, what is God going to do with that? Like, I have no idea. I don't know what God does. That's his prerogative. But I do know that whatever we have, little or big, when you give it into Jesus' hand, when you offer it to him, he yields a harvest. That's the sort of king he is. But it's interesting that right when this happens, he leaves. He, he provides for this amazing miracle, and then they even kind of get it, verse 14, don't they? They go, oh, this guy's a prophet. A prophet like Moses, who, who brought manna from heaven. A prophet like Moses even talked about in Deuteronomy at chapter 18. Moses wrote that the, these words that the Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me, that's Moses, from among you. Listen to him. And so they think maybe this is the long-awaited prophet. But Jesus perceives, oh, they have a misunderstanding of who Jesus is as king. We're going to see this next week, Lord willing, but if you go down to verse 26, Jesus says this. He says, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. In other words, you just want me as a king to fill your bellies with more bread. They wanted an earthly king, a king that would, that would fight their battles for them against the Romans, that would keep their bellies full and their baskets full, that would just give them every dream that they've ever dreamed. They wanted a Jesus that was kind of like Santa Claus. A Jesus like a big vending machine in heaven. They, they wanted a Jesus like Dave Ramsey that could just make all their problems, financial or otherwise, disappear. But Jesus is far more than that. And Jesus won't allow himself to be misunderstood. That's not the kind of king Jesus is. He's not the king that just makes all of your problems go away. He's far better than that. So what sort of king is Jesus? Well, 
In many ways, that's what the story of Jesus walking on water is all about. Verse 16, look, look there with me. So Jesus gets away. He's praying. And in the other gospel account, he tells his disciples to go, to go to Capernaum. So the disciples, they, they go down to the Sea of Galilee. They get in a boat, and they're going to cross towards Capernaum. It's evening. It's getting dark. The disciples are alone on the sea in the dark. And for a while, the wind is at their back, and so they're making their way across the sea. But then, as often is the case, the winds turn, and now the wind is in their face. The boat starts to rock. They start bailing water. They've been rowing and rowing. Their arms are tired. I mean, they're in a panic. And my guess is, though they're fishermen, they look at how far the shore is, or maybe they can even see the shore, and they realize, they're no Michael Phelps. They're not going to be able to make it if they swim. They're terrified. Utterly terrified. Uh, my, my family, uh, growing up, had a boat at the Coeur d'Alene, uh, Lake Coeur d'Alene. And in my opinion, on a nice summer day, there's no place more glorious than being on a boat in a lake when the sun's beating down on you so you can jump in the water. It's wonderful. It's glorious. But I also know this, that when the weather changes, and it can just change quickly, when you see the clouds move in, and you sense it on the water because the waves just start moving. And you're like, what's going on? And then you just see the storm coming. I promise you this. It's terrifying. You make it to safe harbor as quickly as possible. You don't want to be out in the middle of the lake when the storm comes. And so that's the disciples. They're out at sea and they're alone in the storm. And all seems lost. Verse 19. They keep rowing for three or four miles, and then they see someone coming to them. Someone coming to the boat, walking on water. And their response? They're terrified. I mean, evidently they think, like, this must be like some sort of water demon. Like, this must be some monster. I mean, like, like just think common sense-wise. Like, people don't walk on water. And it's... A, Whatever this is, is approaching quickly. So they're terrified. But soon, Jesus makes himself known, doesn't he? He says, it's I, do not be afraid. And then, eventually, when he gets to the boat, they grab him and bring him into the boat. And it's interesting. Look at the last verse, verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. I mean, John doesn't even really tell us the ending. It's just like, ah, oh, and then they got there. Like, I don't, was it like, like hydraulics? Like, like a speedboat? Like, what, what, like, doesn't matter. That's not the point. Like, the conclusion is inevitable at this point. Jesus got in the boat, and that's sort of all that matters. Now, I think often when we look at this story, when we read this story, when we tell this story, when we sit our kids down and we say, hey, we're going to tell you the story about Jesus walking on water. That's the aspect that we focus on. The amazing miracle of Jesus walking on water. And it's amazing. But I don't think it's the most amazing aspect of the story. Or we emphasize 
you know, the, the, the storm. But it's interesting, and I, and I read it, but in John's um, telling of this story, the sea is never calmed. It never says anything. Never is mentioned. It's as if that's not a detail that John's concerned about. Or we talk about how they're afraid that when you meet Jesus, you know, that, 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 that it's, he's terrifying, he's strong, he's powerful. And that's true too. That's part of the story. But, I mean, we would all be terrified if we saw someone walking on water. I don't think that's the most amazing aspect of the story. The most amazing aspect of the story, this sort of theological center of this story, the thing that should shock us, though I don't think it does shock us, but I think should shock us, is that Jesus gets in the boat. In the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their fear, Jesus gets in the boat. I I think sometimes we think of life, we we assume that life is always going to be smooth sailing. But it's not. I mean, this historically happened but this is also a parable for all our lives. That we are, sometimes we have the wind at our back and sometimes we have the wind in our face. Sometimes we have seasons of poverty, spiritual or physical, and other times we have seasons of great wealth and abundance and provision. We have those great seasons where everyone's healthy and those seasons where we just can't catch a physical break. There is no stormless life. This is a parable for us all. Life, the life that Jesus promises, is not a promise where there's going to be no conflict or hardship or suffering. There are storms that are coming, that have come, that will come, have come. There is no such thing as a stormless life. But here's the amazing thing. In the Christian life, there's no such thing as a Christless storm. Can't you relate to this? I mean, just put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Because I think we emotionally do this all the time. When we meet a storm, we instantly start asking these big existential questions, which are basically boiled down to one thing. Where are you, Jesus? So the disciples are in the middle of the ocean. It's dark. They're suffering. Their muscles are tired. And they're like, where is Jesus? Oh, yeah, he's conveniently over on the mountain praying. Isn't that convenient, Jesus? Enjoy the quiet time. This is what we do in every season of suffering and trial and hardship. We just naturally, intuitively, existentially ask, where are you, God? And then we look over sometimes and we compare and we go, you're showing up in that marriage? Why aren't you showing up in my marriage? I mean, you showed up for them financially. Why aren't you showing up for me financially? We begin to ask these questions. And the amazing aspect of this in the midst of the disciples' suffering is that Jesus gets in the boat. His presence is everything. And that's why John doesn't even like kind of conclude well. I mean, he gets an F for conclusion. He just says, and they get there. Because that's not the point. The point is that in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of the storm, Jesus is with them. His presence goes with them. Just like in the Exodus, when they're marching in the wilderness, marching to the promised land with all the suffering and enemies and famine and hunger and conflict, 
What is the, the thing that just buoys them in the midst of their kind of pilgrimage to the promised land? Jesus is in their midst. He's present in them. In the pillar of fire and then in the tabernacle, he goes with them. There is no stormless life. But the amazing thing, the amazing aspect of Christianity, one of the great blessings and fruits of the gospel is that Jesus gets in our boats. I'm talking metaphorically. I don't have a boat. He gets in our boats. He's present with us in our suffering. And how do we know that? Like, how, how can we guarantee that? How are we assured that even when we don't feel like Jesus is with us? Well, the reason is because Jesus is going to, one day, soon in this story, he's going to face the greatest storm ever. He is going to face, face forward the storm of all of our sin when he dies on a cross. The greatest storm that has ever existed, the storm of our sin, all of our sin, falls on Jesus and he dies in our place and he faces that storm. And then bursting out of his resurrection, he promises something. That as a result of him conquering that storm, he will never leave us in our little storms. That's one of the blessings of the gospel. Not that if I pray, or if I had a good quiet time, or if I didn't do this, or, or I did that, then this week will go great for me. That's not the promise of the Christian gospel. The promise bursting out of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that whatever comes, whatever you face in the bend, in the road, Jesus is going to be with you. He's going to be present with you. He's going to help you get through it. He has conquered the ultimate storm. And he, like he was in this story, is with you, present with you. So, what kind of king is Jesus? Well, he's better than a material God. He's, he's, he's better than a, a, a God who will just promise to give you a great 401k. He's not an earthly king in that sense. He is, though, a far better king. A king that will be present with you. A king that will deliver you. A king that promises that whatever befalls you, he is with you. He is for you. That's the sort of king Jesus is. A king who died for us. A king who died for us to set us free. He's the sort of king that will get in any boat and ride the waves with you, even when it's your fault in the first place. That's the sort of king Jesus is. And he's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. Never, not, full, stop. He's going to uphold you, sustain you. That's the sort of king he is. Maybe not the king that you want in this season, but I promise you, in hindsight, he's the king you want. Let's pray. God, we, um, we know that in, in many ways, and in, in many ways that we, we, we seek to, to worship a God of our own making, 
And yet, Lord, we we are thankful for the reminder time and time again that you are a far greater king than we could ever imagine or hope for. A king who loved us enough to die for us. We, We pray that in this season that we would have a deeper understanding of who you are and what you've done in our lives. That we pray, Lord, that we would trust you more and deepen our resolve to be assured that whatever befalls us, we can get through it in light of your presence. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.